0: Amen. Hey, thank the team for the worship and all that. Really glad you're here. It's, uh, it's good to see you all out. It's, uh, if you're online, we're so thankful that technology can just bring us all together like this at least to some degree, but uh, it is really great to have you here. A couple things that we'll mention before we get into the, the message. Today is the annual meeting, and so our delayed annual meeting will happen uh, after church, just a little bit. We'll kick it off about 10.30. I probably won't preach that long, but uh, you never know. Um, and so uh, if you're wanting to hang around for that, that's great. Even if you're not a member, you can hang around for that. You'll get to see... A little bit about how the inner things happen and how we approve stuff and maybe some reports and church health and all that good stuff. Uh, we, I can't even tell you how grateful I am for this body at Castle Oaks. Uh, this, in fact, this past week, uh, we Don and I have been a part of our family here for about two years, and so we're really glad for that. We love you guys. Um, so the annual meeting will happen, and, and we'll welcome some people on to leadership that haven't been on leadership before um, and you'll get to see kind of the health of the church financially and other things as well. And so keep that in mind. That'd be great. Uh, we had worship in the park last, last uh, Sunday night. Wasn't that great? It was really good. Um, it was really fun. It was so much better than the, the bright hot sun of the morning. And um, so we thought, let's do it again. So we're, we're, we're going to do it again. Um, September 13th. We're going to start just a little bit earlier because, you know, now the days are getting a little shorter. And, uh, you know, we can be sad about that, but we can be excited about this. And so uh, just a few weeks from now, on the 13th, we have another October date that we'll uh, unveil a little bit later, early in October. Because, you know, my goodness, it could snow, right? Um, although they're not calling for that. but um, So 6 o'clock we'll have church. We should be ready by then. It'll be close. But uh, we'll have some food trucks and all that kind of stuff around 4 o'clock. Uh, rumor is we've got a pizza truck coming, so you you know you can enjoy that. That'll be great. So uh, keep that in mind. We would love for you to, to be a part of that. Um, we took a little detour from our Way Home series a few weeks ago, and we called it How to Survive a Pandemic, and we did that at the park last week too. And we're just going to kind of stay there just for a minute. I mean, we're still in the Way Home kind of series because this detour is really all about how we find our way with what's going on in our culture. And, uh, and so what we did just a few weeks ago, we, we talked about this, this verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. What we wanted to do was point you to some places in Scripture. When you're at home, when you're deciding that you've had enough news or you're tired of arguing or you're tired of engaging online and Facebook or Twitter or whatever, it, when you wanted to kind of withdraw a bit and maybe recenter your heart and your mind, We wanted you to have some very specific places to go scripturally, just to open up your Bible so you weren't just playing hunt and peck there, so that you could then maybe allow some of the truth of God's word to inform how you think and how you feel, and of course what flows out of how you think and how you feel are the things that you do, the things that you say, the way you treat other people, what kind of relationships you have. And that was key, really, really key. And when you pay attention to the divide in our culture, it just couldn't be more important than right now for you to guard your heart and your mind and understand the times in such a way that you don't get swept up into the mess of what's going on. And it's messy, isn't it? Oh, it's so messy. And, I, and I'm, I'm with you. Yeah, sometimes I get swept up in it as well, but my hope is that my anchor is firm and secure and that there are not reasons for me to get swept up. And we, so we point you to this chapter, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And we walk through a good bunch of the chapter, but we ask you to kind of read it on your own. And so if you're not sure where to go, where to read, then just mark that down. Because we're going to add one chapter to the two that we've given you, okay? And we're going to also tie it into Ezra and it's, uh, you know, it's good stuff. So therefore, since God in his mercy has given us this, say it with me. There's gotta be a new way. When Jesus comes, there's gotta be a new way. A new path, a new way to love, a new way to live. I mean, I mean, we have books and books and stories and stories in the Old Testament of people trying the old way. That's not why we call it the Old Testament, but there is an old way to live and it's not helping. And so many of us, even b- believers and followers of Jesus, still engage in old ways. In fact, when you try to change anything about your life, which my guess is over the last six months, you've tried to change a few things. You find yourself maybe playing with a new way, looking at a new way, reading about a new way, researching a new way, maybe making a list of the new way. And then you fall back into what? The old way, way. that's right. And it's just so common. But Paul says there's a new way, there's a new way all the way to the end of the chapter, then we painted it this way. So we fix our eyes, not on what is seen, that's weird, right? But on what is unseen, how do you watch what is unseen? And we describe this new way of Jesus with these sort of, this, this linear, but it's not really linear, it's more cyclical, it happens in layers in our life of surrender, suffering, death, and new life. And we ask the question, which of these are seen? Well, suffering and death we see all the time. What's hard to see? Not always unseen, but what's hard to see? Things like surrender and new life. But this is the path that Jesus walked. When you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, then you see the story of Jesus lived out in all four of these things. He surrendered, he, he suffered for sure, and he was killed. He died. But then what came after that resurrection and new life? And Jesus says to me, and he says to you, if you want new life, just follow me. And we say, oh, that's good. I want to follow Jesus. What do I have to do? Oh, I don't know. I'm not up for that, really. That's not fun. I don't want to, I don't don't dig that. I certainly don't want that. Oh, that's the worst. I just want this. And Jesus says, well, you know, that's not how it works. So we can start over if you want, or you can just sort of languish, or you can just keep trying your old way. But when you're ready, when you want to try the new way, then just follow me. It's hard. It's really, really tough. And so this was this chapter and why it gave us such a foundation for how to get through what we're going through. And it could be that what you're going through doesn't have anything to do with a pandemic. It could be just your own stuff. And then we said, if you're going to live this out, we point you to another chapter in Scripture. It's in a different letter that Paul wrote. It's the letter to, to the Romans. It's chapter 12. And he starts... This little section in chapter 12, it's a little bit through the chapter, he says this. In fact, let's just say this together. Ready? Let's all say it together. Don't just pretend to love others. And then he gives you about 24, 25 ways to live this out. And so, you know, if you're thinking, I don't know how to do this. I wasn't taught really how to love in my family. Uh, This is not how my dad did things. It's not how my mom did things. It's not what I was learning about life and relationships and how things work. It's not the way it is in my workplace. Then you could just go to Romans 12 and find 24, 25 ways to live this out very practically every day and just decide, here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna honor people above me. I'm going to forgive easily and freely. And it's all right there. You can just say, I'm just going to live this out. I'm just Here's my to-do list for today. It's one thing long. That's all I have to do is this one thing. I mean, that's more than you got done last week, wasn't it? And so this is how we want to live. It's powerful, and it's good, and it's important because we kind of smart, we kind of kind of just grimace a bit when we see this we know what it means to pretend to love others right I mean even followers of Jesus know what this looks like we say things like I mean I'll love them because God said to but I don't like them as if we could kind of harbor this sort of distaste for who they are and how they think and what kind of people they are and still you know put a little band-aid of Christian love on top of it and call it good but the problem is, wherever you go, there you are. And it comes out. It comes out when you least expect it too. And there you are, not loving. And so we want to give you some very practical things. So if, if 2 Corinthians 4 is a little conceptual for you, then, then maybe Romans 12 just hits the, you know, hits the road for you. And you can decide, this is, this is what I want to be. So this this series, The Way Home, is all about the exiles in the Old Testament coming home. So just to refresh you, you might remember, Zerubbabel comes back with a big old pile of uh, Jewish men and women, Israelites, and they rebuild the altar and they rebuild the temple. It's all about brick and mortar, and they, they start to rebuild. But you and I both know rebuilding, whether you're rebuilding a country, a family, a church, your marriage... Relationship with your estranged kids. Rebuilding is not about knowing where to put the mortar and the brick, is it? Rebuilding is about something a little deeper than that. And so, Zerubbabel, he brings the first wave. By the time we get to the middle of Ezra, we finally meet the namesake for the book. His name happens to be what? You're right, Ezra. And so, Ezra comes back, and he comes back with another crew, another group. And it says in Ezra 7, Ezra came up from Babylon. Remember, he was in exile, but he's coming home. He was a teacher. He was what? Say it with me. Well-versed in the law of Moses, which the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. The law of Moses, well, if you were Jewish, and you, know, you have to be Jewish to know this, you might even know this already, it's called the Torah, and it's the law in the Old Testament that God gave. And law has a capital L the Hebrew word is actually Torah, and it describes who God wants us to be. Well, there are some incredible, deep, and thoughtful lessons about the exile story and what happens to Ezra and the man that follows Ezra. His name's Nehemiah. He's got his own book. Used to be one book, but he's got his own book now. And what happens when they come back and how they lead and It's almost as if somebody read the headlines and the news stories of our day and then wrote Ezra and Nehemiah. We cannot leave that untouched before we finish this series. But Ezra's desire was to drive the people of God to the Word of God and to help them understand what God is up to. And so to help you do that, because my guess is there's a few of you that are overachievers or really interested researchers that maybe have read Ezra and Nehemiah. But most of us need something a little more practical and tangible when it comes to digging into Scripture and deciding where we're going to head and how we're going to get there. And so my hope is, is that you've become familiar with 2 Corinthians chapter 4. That you've maybe taken a look at Romans chapter 12. And that you'll dig into this next chapter, which is just keeping on reading. 2 Corinthians 4, what's 2 Corinthians chapter 5? And so before we get back into the exile story, I want to take you to this chapter, 2 Corinthians. You can find it right in your table of contents, and it follows the chapter that we started this with, and then we'll return to the exiles next week. The chapter begins like this. Chapter five, verse one. For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. This earthly tent that we live in, it's a metaphor, right? It's a picture of something. What's he describing? What's he talking about? He's talking about this earthly tent, the body I live in and the the body that you live in. We had a funeral in this room yesterday. A couple of funerals this last few weeks uh, for me and some of my friends. And it's become very obvious to me when we come face to face with not just the idea of death, but the practical reality of death. That what Paul's describing is that there's an earthly tent that we have and we know, our hope is that there's, there's something more than what we have here. And it doesn't take long for you to get into the aging process, for you to stand in front of a mirror and think, man, this is earthly tent. This is, ah. I mean, there's got to be something more than this. This can't be it for me. And Paul describes it. In fact, Paul uses incredible imagery to describe what's really going on. In other words, what he just said in chapter 4 at the end, don't miss the difference between what is seen and what is unseen. And he's going to dig deep into it. So we have an earthly tent, but we also have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Jesus describes it in his ministry. And as he describes this earthly tent, he, he doesn't just describe it this way. He tells you what it's like to live in it. Here's what he says. Meanwhile, we, what? Do you groan? Yeah, I mean, even you saying groan sounded like you groaning. (laughs) Yes, we groan. When I was a young man, it used to take uh, some significant physical exercise for me to groan. I mean, really, really try to do something that I didn't even know I could do for me to groan. Now, when I get up from the couch, I groan. (laughs) And the first time I did that, it wasn't on purpose, right? I mean, it's not on purpose now, but I, I know it's coming first time I did that I got it from the couch and I groaned and I thought oh no I'm becoming my my dad I'm becoming my dad dad used to do that and I would think really dad was that hard (laughs) it is kind of hard especially once you've sat for so long right and so we we groan we groan but he's not just talking about physical groaning is he no He's talking about the feeling that you have when you watch the world burn. When you watch relationships disintegrate. When you watch pain or selfishness or ego take center stage. And you think it doesn't have to be this way. It doesn't have to be this way. And so you groan. In fact, Paul even says in another passage that sometimes when we pray, we don't even know what to say. And so we groan inwardly, and the Holy Spirit translates it to God for us. That, that truth is so deeply important because what is seen, this physical tent, and what is unseen are connected. They are connected. And Paul weaves the truth of what is seen and what is unseen together. In fact, he goes on to say this in the same chapter that you're going to read later. Meanwhile, we groan, we long to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling. You felt this before. In fact, every now and then, some of you feel it during worship, when you seem to just reach up just with your heart, your mind, your your countenance, your attitude, your, your pain, and you touch heaven just a little bit. When that happens, you long to be clothed instead with your heavenly dwelling. There's something in you that yearns for what will be. The way it's said in the Old Testament is that God has planted eternity in your heart. And so every experience you have of the temporary, of the physical, of this earthly tent is going to leave you wanting something else. It's not enough. And so you long to be clothed. This this feeling of longing happened just a little bit for me last Sunday night as I watched you all worship under the the beautiful sky at uh, at Miller. You know, it was was cool, so it was comfortable. It's amazing how that helps us experience God, right? And we looked up, and the sky was clear, just a little bit more clear than it had been all day. This smoky sky is now leaving us because of the rain. Amen. Thank God, right? Are we thankful for that? And then the sun was setting and it peeked out in between the clouds and Josh was singing and Josh's voice helps me experience the presence of God. Does it work for you that way? Ah, it's as clear as a bell to me. I just love it. And there was a moment and I I, I longed for a heavenly dwelling because of how broken everything is. It's not just this year and this mess. It's pretty consistent. I mean, you've read the history books, right? It's pretty consistent. This is not new. So Paul says, we groan and we long to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling because when we are clothed, say this with me, we will not be found. Have you ever had that dream? You have, haven't you? I mean, it's pretty universal. Nobody wants to talk about it because then you're thinking, now you're thinking about it. And I really don't want you thinking about it. The reason I don't want you thinking about it is because I had that dream and it was awful, and then I lived it. so don't be thinking about it. first time I ever got up to preach in front of an audience, I got down and you know I left the podium, and you know it was an old style uh, you know deal with a uh, podium and all that, the lectern, and, and I walked back and they were singing the last song, and I looked down at my feet, and I realized that my zipper was down. and <laughs> This was this was true and I thought this is not a good omen for my time as a preacher and that was real that wasn't a dream but you've had this dream where you walk into a meeting or you know walk into the DMV or whatever and you look around and everybody's wearing clothes and you go whoops I forgot my clothes this dream why because we don't want to be exposed we we don't want to be found out what does that mean it means that you and i carry with us the the nature of adam in us this this part of adam that was rebellious that wanted his own way that didn't want to do what god wanted he wanted what he wanted that's part of you too i, I know i know you're you're smiling and you're all dressed thank the lord and and we can be cordial but I know that you have in you the same rebellious heart that Paul had when he described, I'm the chief of sinners. There isn't anybody I know that doesn't believe at some point in their life, maybe more often than others, that they aren't the chief of sinners and that they don't struggle with their own nature and being rebellious against God. We have coming up a, a golf scramble here at the church. You'll, you'll see it in the E! News. It's, it's happening on the, the 22nd of this month. And it's, it's, it's for the men of our church to get out and play some golf. And I think that will be incredible, but not for the reasons that you think. Here's why it matters. Here's why it's a really big deal and why I think you ought to, if you're a dude, you ought to come. Even if you don't play golf, you ought to come out and play golf. I know a little bit about you if we're in church together. I know a little bit about you. But when you put us on the golf course together, I find out what kind of man you are. And you find out what kind of man I am. We learn a little something about this earthly tent we're in or whether you believe that there should be a difference between somebody's language when they're in the church building (laughs) and when they're out on the golf course or how competitive you really are. And it's better if we know each other, isn't it? I mean, we can walk together then. I mean, if I'm naked and you're naked, the playing field's even, isn't it? Now, this is what Paul is describing: what is seen and what is unseen. What's the earthly tent? But what's the the heavenly dwelling that we long for? And what does that even look like? He, he goes on to describe it. This this all matters. This isn't conceptual. This is this is real. This is happening now. When he just goes on describing more, he says this, for while we are on this tent, do you you, uh, agree with this? Do you identify with with what he's saying? We groan and we are, what? You carry a burden. Sometimes it's seen, sometimes it's unseen. Sometimes it's just that your shoulders slump for what you're carrying. Because we do not wish to be unclothed, but we want to be clothed instead with our, say it with me, heavenly dwelling. So that what is mortal may be swallowed up by what? By life. Now this word, this is an important word. In fact, if you don't catch this word, you'll miss the entire meaning in the whole chapter. This, this, li- this life word in the Greek is, is zoe. And it, it res- describes a life that is so full and so abundant you cannot contain it. You can't hold on to it. You felt it. You've experienced it. Whenever you have experienced life in such a way that you look around, you can't believe that you're loved in spite of who you are. It begins to overflow in you when you can't believe that you don't want for things that God has provided for you. And it may not be because you have the biggest house on the block or the nicest car on the street. It is most likely because you've experienced something of God's love that is overwhelming you, knowing that you are forgiven in spite of the sinful nature that you carry with you and this abundant, overflowing, complete and overwhelming life begins to flow up in you. And usually it leads to, I don't know, you breaking into laughter or tears or some emotion that you can't begin to explain. This is what it means when our mortal, our mortality is swallowed up by life. It's the exact same word that Jesus used when he said this. I have come that they may have, what? So he says, I've come that you may have life, zoe, Greek, abundant, overflowing. You've tasted it. And that they may have it to the... So Jesus takes a word that already means full and adds full to it. That is exceedingly beyond any expectation that you could ever have or dream of or imagine and you've tasted it. Not enough, have you? Not enough. This side of the veil, this side of heaven, you get a taste. And that taste is designed to remind you that you live in an earthly tent but you were made for a heavenly dwelling and that this taste should drive and direct your behavior, the way you love, the way you forgive. In fact, what Paul is describing, while it may seem very conceptual, is the only reason for us to live as followers of Jesus. The only reason. He goes on to say, Paul does, same chapter. Now the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God who has given us the what? As a what? Ah, it's a taste, just a taste. This is where the unseen hits the scene. You live in a physical body, we can all see it. And yet what lives in you is something that is unseen, the spirit of God, but it works as... It functions as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. So there's something now, right now, and there's so much more to come. We have this mortal body, this earthly tent, but we have a glimpse of what is to come. There's a portion of God himself that lives within us. It's that part of you that longs for your heavenly dwelling eternity and so we have this groaning and this burden that we carry and as we carry it we get to see the eternal it's a mix of life on earth and the hope of heaven now most of the time in church and even as followers of Jesus we understand it this way that there is, and you can see it maybe even a little better on the big screen. That there is my earthly life, and you know, that's what? 70 years if you're lucky. We're pushing the limits now, right? Maybe 80. Read about a man and a woman. He's 104, and she was, I don't know, how old was she? Do you remember? She was 104, and he was 110, and they've been married for 80? 80 years. Can you imagine? Some of you just thought, I can't do 80 years. <laughs> I know that's what you thought. You know why you thought that? Because you live in this earthly tent, you know, you're a little like Adam. 80 years. So the funeral we had uh, Saturday, yesterday, young man was 24. So what do you get? Your earthly life, your life. And then after your earthly life, what do you go on to? Your what? what? Your heavenly reward, this is what we've been taught. This is how we understand this life, that, that there's, there's this earthly life and I've got to put up with all of you while we're here. And then I go off to my heavenly reward and thankfully not everybody's in heaven, right? I mean, not those people I don't like. They're not there, are they? I mean, certainly not those people that voted for him. They're not there, are they? <laughs> And so I go on to my heavenly reward, and I get to have peace and happiness and play a harp and sing a lot and whatever it is that you think you do in heaven. And this is how we perceive how this works, that there's two lives that we have and that they're completely separate and really aren't connected. How many of you have been... You grew up believing this. You, 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 you talk, let me see your hands. You kind of thought this is how it works. Maybe you think now. You don't have to raise your hand now because I'm about to prove you wrong. But um, <laughs> this is what we believe happens in the concept of, of this eternity and heaven that we, you know, we're here now, but one day we're going there. We don't know where there is, but we, we're sure going. And this is not very biblical. It's not. It's not what Paul believes at all. In fact, when you read the letters of Paul, when you understand the concept that Revelation teaches us, this is not how it's working out. It's true, we have a mortal tent, this earthly tent, but we also have waiting for us a heavenly return body. What is it? It looks a little bit more like this when you understand Scripture that there is my earthly life. And in my earthly life, I get a taste of heaven. I get a taste of it. But as I experience that taste, it really represents the prayer Jesus prayed the Sermon on the Mount. He said, may your kingdom come, may your will be done. What does he say next? On earth as it... So there's kind of two locales, it seems to be, And that there's something going on in heaven that's not happening on earth. But it's the followers of Jesus that love and forgive and restore and create justice and construct systems that are fair and equitable. All of these things that Jesus taught while he explained what it means to live out his love. And so when we do that, it brings heaven to what? To earth. Well, when I read Revelation, I also see that what is promised is that there will be a new heaven and a new earth. It is all encompassed in God's reign. Now, if your deal is revelation and prophecy and understanding it, then more power to you. The more I read about it, the more confused I get. Anybody else? But what I do know when I read the totality of Scripture is that God will bring about a new heaven and a new earth where his reign is full and complete. And the kingdom is fully realized and we get to be a part of it. In fact, it's not two things. Your life has already begun. Your eternal life has already begun. Your life with God has already started. It started long before you even drew breath It started when God imagined you and knit you in your mother's womb and ordained every day of your life and knew before you were born how many hairs would be on your head. This is what life is. This is Zoe. This is the abundant life. And so if you're waiting for a day when God swoops in, cleans up your earthly tent, makes everything better, and you get to actually start living, you'll be sorely disappointed because God has invited you to experience life and life to the full now. And you'll miss it, you'll miss it. If you long for what isn't without understanding that the taste that you have in you is giving you more of what God wants to happen to build his kingdom here. Now, this is so important, here's why. If you live this way, Well, you'll endure for the hope of something better later. But if you live this way, well, Paul gives us a really big therefore. Everything he said about earthly tent and and heavenly home, everything he's painted a picture of when it comes to your mortal life and eternity to come has been for one very specific reason, right? I mean, if I think I'm going to rid myself of everything that's made my life miserable one day... When God just waves the wand and Jesus comes back, well, I'm gonna live a certain way. But if I believe that my life has started now, then every one of my relationships takes on different meaning, which is why Paul says at the end of the chapter, these words. So from now on, we regard who? How many people? Except those one neighbors, right? So from now on, we regard what? No one from a, what? Worldly point of view. What does that mean? If we regard somebody from a worldly point of view, well, if you run a business, then people are, what? Customers, that's right. They're a means to an end. If you're a political, aspirational leader, then people are, what? They're votes. They're a means to an end. Paul says, if I understand this earthly tent and what God has called me to, if I understand that the Holy Spirit is an eternal heavenly deposit that's already in me and that Zoe life, that this, this abundant life that Jesus has promised is available to me right now in this place, then I will regard no one from a worldly point of view. You are not your party Come on, you're not the person that you hope gets in office. You're not even your opinions about the Bible or or eschatology. You're not your job. You're not your habits. You're not your sin. You're not your past. You're not your family. You're not your mom. You're not your dad. I refuse to regard you from any worldly point of view. So how do I see you? Oh, well, you or walking around in an earthly tent, just like me, but you are also an image bearer, eternal. Every person you meet. I love how C.S. Lewis says it. This is long and wordy, but if you catch a, a phrase, you can Google it later and read the whole quote. This is good. He says it this way. There are no ordinary people You have never talked to a mere mortal. Isn't that beautiful? It's powerful. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal and their life is to ours as the life of a what? Oh, if we only had this perspective. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors? You'll have to chew on that a while. Beyond our time together. So, you know, like I said, catch a phrase and Google it. And then he says this. I know, it's a lot. This does not mean that we are to be perpetually solemn. No, that's not true. We must play. But our merriment must be of that kind. And it is, in fact, of the merriest kind, which exists between people who have from the outset let me start that sentence over which exists between people who have from the outset taken each other seriously no flippancy no spirit no superiority and no presumption and then he wraps it up by saying this next to the blessed sacrament itself your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses It's beautiful. So I wonder what it would be like if we treated each other this way. And you can maintain every conviction you've got and treat each other that way. You can keep all of your assuredness about how the world should work, about how systems should be restructured about what should be spent and what should not be spent. You can keep your party affiliation. You can keep all of that and still love this way every day. So then Paul says this at the end of the chapter. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of what? I mean, that word ought to be the word of the year. This is what he's given to us. Reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. I mean, my goodness, if God doesn't, how can we? How can we? And then he says this, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation for we are therefore Christ's, You know what an ambassador does, right? All ambassador does is say, "Uh, this this is what the king says and I represent that. This is what the king is, I represent that. I have no liberty to make up my own statements. I have no freedom to do anything, make decisions, nothing at all. I just represent what's present in the edict that has been given. That's all I do. And so when I choose to hold somebody accountable, I have to look, oh, why not counting people's sins against them, I see, I see. I misunderstood the king, so that's how I'm gonna be now. I'm gonna love this way. I'm gonna give this way. Because I have an earthly tent and this earthly tent is temporary. I've been made for eternity. And because I've been made for eternity, I've been asked to love in this way because love, the love of Jesus that is complete and full is the only thing that will ever change anything in the world. In fact, it's the hard truth that Ezra has to learn that even as a priest, he doesn't know. It's the reality that Nehemiah has to come face to face with that even he is unaware of. But you and I, we're not. We know it. I'm gonna invite the band back up. You, you saw, you guys come on up. You saw Stacy play in the violin. Wasn't it good to have Stacy back? About two and a half weeks ago, Stacy was, I hope she didn't mind me saying, she was, she was working and, uh, and doing a little project with some co workers and took a shelf to the head. And what that meant for Stacy is that she found herself in the ER with 10 staples in her scalp. A couple more inches in Stacy's story, in fact, the Windsor story, would be very different. Very different. The funeral a few weeks ago was for a young girl, 15 years old, who came out of the back of a Jeep without her seatbelt on. The funeral yesterday, as I said, was for a 24-year-old who died an untimely death, accidentally. Oh, You don't know what you have left, do you, in your earthly tent? Steve Johnson walked in today and Michaela and I joked about his shirt that he's wearing that says, made in 1974, and underneath it, it says, all original parts. Now, it's hilarious now, right? We weren't laughing 18 months ago, were we? No. I mean, we were wringing our hands in hope, sometimes fear. But to see Michaela, whose organ lives in Steve, call him out for his shirt. (laughs) That's a good day. Is that a good day? I mean, his earthly tent, his earthly tent, stitched back together. A few days ago, Stacy got all the staples out of her head, and now she's playing violin for you. Today, you have the chance to operate as a minister of reconciliation with the people around you. All that remains to be seen is if you will focus your attention on the people in front of you, and love them the same way that God loves them. You have never met a mere mortal. Will you love them that way? If you do, I believe God looks upon us and smiles and says, there you go. Come on, boy. That's how you do it. That's how you love. That's how you change the world. That's how you bring the kingdom of heaven to earth. And so, Lord, as we sing these lyrics and wrapping up our service today, our hope and prayer is that you will allow us to use the words of your scripture, 2 Corinthians 4, Romans 12, 2 Corinthians 5, to walk away with an understanding of how you want us to live, who you want us to be, how you want us to love the people around us. This is our hope and prayer that you would build our life in this way.